Welcome. This is the Synth DIY podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who has watched, commented, and liked the podcast we've had so far. I'd really appreciate it if you give this episode a like and consider subscribing as it really helps to grow the show. I'm here today with Juanito Moore. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. Hi, Juanito. Do you want to say a few words? Hey, it's me, Juanito. Um, I'm happy to be here, and I have been enjoying the shows so far. Excellent work. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you watching. And also, like, I thank you so much for you know, agreeing to come on the show. A load of people have been really keen for you to come on. And oh, good. You know, I'm really excited to be able to host this with you on it. So it's, it's really nice. Cheers, man. Awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Right. Before we get started, we, like the, the show kind of has a rough question answer based um theme to it just to keep a bit of consistency Mm -hmm. but i know that we're going to want to talk about all kinds of things and that's fine there's literally no like rules about staying on on the conversation they're just literally a framework to keep consistency so absolutely i've actually studied so i'm ready to go (laughs) you ready this is exciting (laughs) okay yeah all right, we're going to go in with question one. Synth DIY encompasses a wide range of skills, design, component knowledge, assembly, programming, troubleshooting, and musical performance. Would you describe yourself as a maker, builder, musician, or something else entirely? I would describe myself as a maker and a designer, a little bit of a musician, but it but I find myself more drawn to the creation of the of the of the modules and the synthesizer than I am to the making using it to make music, um, and I really do enjoy the meticulous sort of methodical process of building something out of electronics. Um, that is what I if I don't do that for too long, I start to feel anxious and sad and unwell a little bit. But once I get the opportunity to build something with my hands, I, um, you know, that really is awesome for my mental health. So I would say more maker and designer. It's fantastic, man. When did you first become aware that building synth DIY was like really beneficial to your being? Um, I would say I've, I've been aware of wanting to build things with my hands ever since I was a kid. Like when I was four, uh, my parents gave me a, like a glue together model of a Sopwith camel, like a biplane, World War One era biplane. And so I couldn't read, but I remember putting it together with glue. And it was a mess, but it was, it worked well. I mean, it was a model when I finished. So even when I was little, I loved building things with my hands. And that's, but then when I was a kid also, my friend taught me how to solder. And so we made little desktop fans. I lived in the jungle of Peru where it's always hot. And um, that was my introduction to electronics. Uh, but then, yeah, I've loved – and electronics are so easy in, this, in the sense that you don't need a ton of materials. Uh, you just need a soldering iron and solder and the components, of course. But the components can be got for free or cheap from so many places if you're willing to just use cassette tape motors, um, wires that you get from anywhere, uh, batteries. In fact, I've always been building things in tin cans as well because those first uh, fans I built were in little metal Band-Aid boxes. 
Uh, so it's strange to me that that's come full circle. And now I build my synth, my personal synthesizer almost totally in tin cans. So it's yeah, hard. a long time. It has been a long journey. It's hard for me because I want to talk to you about quite a few things that you've mentioned, but it's, you know, with that synth behind you and the, we've already started talking about tin cans. It's so difficult for <laughs> me, <laughs> but I, I really want to bring, bring up one of the points you said there, the stop with camel. Now yeah. I have a link to, in my childhood, um, making is this is this like one of those balsa wood type of constructions i did i have built those a bunch of times but this one was just plastic like Ravel is the company we have in this country um it's just plastic you glue it together with plastic cement yeah I know and it was small i think it was probably maybe four inches long so it was a tiny little cheap model and this is back in like in the 70s so no, that's awesome they've come a long way it's weird yeah. because like I'm um, in my own life I've got a link with the stop with camel for some reason. I don't know if you remember those very early PC games. I don't know if you ever came across any of um yeah. like and, and then there was one that called Stop With Camel where you had this little stop with and you could like <laughs> it was very basic and you could like drop bombs on things and do these pirouettes in the air. It was I don't think the stop with camel was a bomber. Was it a bomber? <laughs> no, I don't think it was. I no, but I think I think back in those early days, I think that anything goes with planes. Right. They just throw a grenade overboard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and call be. themselves a bomber. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Sop with camel. Yeah, I think that. But, um, no, I do. I I personally love this kind of kind of childhood element when you're first learning to create and use your hands and make things like um you know air we call uh, do you call them airfix kits airfix is the plastic ones right yeah 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 i've heard the term but probably just from being my exposure to british culture yeah i think it's the same yeah. thing i think it's just a different maybe it's a brand but yeah so um yeah making those planes um so interesting about the peru element so i guess this is driven by um, actual requirement for some kind of function here. So you've got a fan. Um, yeah, that was at that point. Sure. I mean, I wanted, yeah, I, fans were so important because it's so hot, you know, when you're sitting in class. And then, of course, the show off factor, you know, you look around and you bring out this <laughs> tin can, <laughs> yeah. put it on your desk, and there's a switch on the side and then a fan. And it was like, oh, I wish I had a personal fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. So are you getting? So you're taking these motors and components from something like maybe an old cassette deck, or get the motor from there, and you know, taking parts from from around the environment. Yeah, just found parts. Yeah, I mean, when I was oh boy, I guess this was ten, eleven, twelve when I was building little desktop fans. But before that, one of the first gifts my dad gave me that I really remember was an old tube tester, which is a console that has a bunch of plugs for um, vacuum tubes and dials everywhere. And I figured out how to push wires into slots and then dials would make a motor spin faster or slower. And so, I mean, a tube tester looks a lot like a synthesizer um, with all its knobs and stuff like that. So my interest in electronics was only spurred by that as well um, from an early age. Well, that, so, yeah. 
So with the tube tester, isn't there like quite a high voltage um, involved? Yes, but I didn't. I only plugged it into a six volt battery. My dad wouldn't let me plug it into the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Although it probably came with a probably came with a separate power supply because it wasn't that heavy. It wasn't heavy enough for a giant transformer. As an adult, I know what high voltage involves, <laughs> and that's no. I, I, I did wasn't playing with uh, you know four hundred uh, volts at that age. Oof. Yeah, no way. Um, I know because I think, um, yeah, I mean that that kind of playing around with stuff like uh, I've I don't know if I mentioned this before on the podcast, but I think I might have. Like my friends, um, Gavin, when I was talking to him, my dad mm. um, had an electronics workshop when I was young and growing up, and I used to like see all of this stuff on the side, and um, you know, like um, variable power supplies, students' mm. projects, and all this kind of electronics, and I was like always fascinated by it. So, yeah, it, it's like when you're when you're young, this all these electronics can seem very exciting. Yeah. Even pretty basic, boring things that don't really do much, like a tube tester. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. I guess it, the tube, the tubes have kind of like not really been in the forefront. I know that there's a few like Eurorack modules around with mm-hmm. tubes in them. Have you ever thought about using tubes in any of your designs? I haven't. They're, uh, I think they're too expensive, and it's difficult to make it really make a difference. Like some of the, so much of the effects that you can get from a tube, like some of the really nice, smooth uh, saturation or distortion can be had using other components. Like an LED will give you a nice, smooth sort of saturation type effect um, or a pair of LEDs, I guess. Uh, and so, yeah, I've never really thought about it. I do have a friend who's into the guitar pedal scene and he's, very excited about the way certain designers and builders have made vacuum tube uh, pedals. Uh, but a pedal is, and I, you know, pedals interest me as well, but only a little bit because they're so the interconnection possibilities are a little bit less, uh, uh, less elaborate with how much, how you can cross patch them and stuff like that. So yes, but no, not really. Although I love the, um, sort of the aesthetics of tubes and the uh, ingenuity they represent and my own, my own personal building style. I don't know if you can see this. It's uh, yeah, that's amazing. Oftentimes I use components just attached to each other using uh, flying jumper leads and things like, you know, that are a three dimensional shape, which is how tubes are made as well. You know, they have little technicians, you know, crimping and soldering all these pieces into a tube. And so that resonates with me as well. Um, and I'm old enough that I saw it. I remember seeing Nixie tubes in real life in a, in a store inside the, um, cash registers. And I was like, what? They, I mean, Nixie tubes are just so deeply cool. <laughs> yeah. And as a child, I was just looking at them thinking, ah, look at that glowing numbers and they're in a layer. So anyway, Nixie, I don't, I don't know if you can turn, make Nixie tubes be part of a synth. I'm sure you can, but that's, yeah, that's part of, that's really cool. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I've got, um, I've got a couple of Nixie tubes in a box right next to me here, actually. Um, cause my friend made, you know, like he made the Nixie clock. Um, yeah. And I think you need to have, um, 
I think it's six of six tubes to make a Nixie clock and he he bought them in a set of eight or something and so so i ended up with two nixie tubes and i you know like obviously every now and again they're really nice i think they're from somewhere in eastern europe and they've come yeah. in like some you know like in this really nice is the packaging as well there's something about the aesthetic of it you know like you've got something with like from a different era slash yes. almost almost universe they are yeah. aren't they yeah yeah uh yeah, there's something from a different universe. I'm pretty sure Nixies. Um, they're really it, as soon as you started talking about tubes, I started thinking about Nixie tubes. And when you mentioned it, yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you could build a clock that just shows the hour. Yeah, yeah, it's just with, the hour with, with two Nixie tubes. Yeah, well, what hour is it? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, but... uh, it's it's twelve o'clock. <laughs> That's cool. That's awesome, man. I think. Um, you know, you can't go wrong when you've got something. I saw a program on YouTube. They weren't called Nixie Tubes. Um, there was like a similar type of effect, but it was kind of using some kind of ray, like a cathode ray, and it was like projecting something. Um, and they were used as a kind of post-Nixie tube, I guess, to try and maybe reduce down the complexity of the build. But uh, there's, there's an interesting YouTube. I might link it in the description. Um, yeah, it's one of those. You know, I think that that those kind of technologies, it's good stuff. Well, it is funny to think about how a tube, like a cathode ray tube television or monitor, has no resemblance to anything that you would regularly call a tube. But then, if you go back historically long enough, you see that the first cathode ray tubes were legitimately tubes of metal with a cap on the end that was designed with the phosphorus or whatever and the electron would hit it so sure that video sounds interesting i'll tell you what another thing so this is going quite out there but there <laughs> was a, yeah there was i saw something about um some kind of spy technology where they could because of the projection from cathode ray tube they could literally like outside a building if 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 the cathode ray was pointing at a window they could like see the output from a display outside <laughs> so 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 the the electron ray was missing some of the phosphors and hitting the rest of the room and if you tuned to the right frequencies you could see what was going on like it was projected right oh yeah, how fascinating yeah. i know it's pretty cool <laughs> Right, I just I'm going to drag this back on track now. <laughs> Next question. Yes, <laughs> Sorry. I thought this might happen, but um, all right. When people in the synth DIY community first encounter a modular synth, it can be a significant experience. Can you describe when you first saw or heard a modular synthesizer? Oh yeah, when I was in my early childhood, maybe five, my mother had a cassette tape of "Switched on Bach" by Wendy Carlos, and that first that was the first time I was really interested in music, especially classical music. And the sounds that her Moog made tickled my brain in a way, and it has never stopped. I still am fascinated by that particular sound. In, in particular, I would say the subtractive synthesis, the, the resonant low-pass filter sweeping down a square or, or, or ramp wave. It's just something that I've loved since childhood, and I still love it. Um, Tom Sawyer by Rush just has that really simple saw oscillator, and it goes, and that sound, I just love it, you know? 
So that was my first exposure to modular. I didn't know what it was. My, I, I asked my dad, Hey, what is making this music? And he said, it's a synthesizer, son. And that is the end of what I learned about it. So it wasn't until I want to say eight years ago that maybe seven years ago, my friend had a Roland, um, little bits. Korg, Korg little bits. And that was my first time actually seeing a modular synthesizer in real life, <laughs> which you would expect since I've enjoyed music my whole life and I've loved synthesizers my whole life, you would have expected me to encounter one sooner. But no, the Korg little bits was the first time I'd seen and touched a technically a modular synth. But that's a, such a little toy. And the patch possibilities are fairly limited. Uh, almost like uh, guitar pedals, because you kind of set stuff up in a line. I don't know if you can patch with wires, but I di didn't know anything about that. So that was when I first encountered one physically in real life. And what you can do with that is the same thing you can do with a Moog in the sense that you're low-passing a square or whatever wave. But that captured my imagination, so I started searching DIY little bits and do you care if I t talk about how I started building a synth? No, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm getting into. No, man, this is this is exactly what I want to hear. <laughs> so then I was searching DIY little bits, and that's, I mean, w here we all are deep in the SDIY community. We know that's not a search term that's going to get you a lot of hits because the little bits is a pretty limited type of environment, type of ecosystem. But I was like, okay, I'll take little squares of plywood and I'll construct little circuits on the plywood and then connect them together with twisty bits of wire. But then I was working. And so I got myself an oscillator. I think I built myself a baby eight sequence. In fact, I went for 16. The very first time I built one of those, I built a baby 16, uh, sequencer and, and my oscillators in particular, when I get close to them, there'd be tons of interference. I was like, ah, oh, because I'm working in a, in, I get to build my synthesizer where I work, which is a residential home for kids. And there's big, low hanging fluorescent lights. And so I'm getting all this buzz off of the lights when I'm getting close to the circuit. So I think I need shielding. So I started bringing tuna cans to work and building my circuits inside of tuna cans. And I had five or six tuna cans built with a delay, uh, and, oscillators and filters and a sequencer. And I was just twisting them together, connecting the powers with barrel plugs and a big old octopus of power distribution. And then I was like, this is very difficult to work with. I'll stick my stuff together in a big rack. And so I have this uh, thing that's all stuck together with brown paper. But then I went to KnobCon that year, which is a Chicago synthesizer convention. And that's when I saw Eurorack for the first time. And I was like, oh, it's rectangles. It's plugged into a rack. That makes so much more sense than the way I've been doing it. So I didn't, I'm not sure I really knew what a modular synthesizer was before I started building my modules in tin cans. Uh, but if I could go back and do it over again, I might have started with a rack and rectangles because that does make a ton more sense. But I do have an artifact now that is different from everybody else's. I, th I think that when people come at it on their own with their own originality, their own 
essence in there it is so much more in the end because you end up with something which you know is completely unique and it is very different yes <laughs> it is totally fascinating to the eye and it's everything that you know i think that synthesizers they need they need they need to, to inspire something inside you mm. um, and when you look at some you know like normal kind of um panels which are all like neat and basically fitting together sometimes you know a lot of manufacturers are too scared to really um express themselves because uh you know that will like pigeonhole their customers to a specific you know oh i loved i only deal with um black panels um yeah yeah, but to actually have something you know i'm much more drawn to like manufacturers like soma for example who produce these beautiful wooden paneled um yeah you know interfaces where it's 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 designed as a human interface where people are reaching and touching the synthesizer yeah yes totally well and part of the intimidation that you get with uh with everything in rectangles is it's not completely obvious if everything's black where one module ends and another module begins so maybe a new user will be overwhelmed by the number of knobs but at the same time nobody knows what my synthesizer even does even people who know modular synthesizers really well are like what the fuck is that <laughs> and people who don't know anything about synthesizers have the same response what the is that so <laughs> that is my but you know i feel like especially with round modules um i can tack to i can sort of physically feel my way around my synthesizer a little bit better than i could if it was euro rack although i see your angled uh euro rack in the back that's gorgeous but yeah. having it be on angles is probably really helpful if you can categorize this angle is my oscillators this angle is my effects etc so yeah, I don't know. I can see the value in both, obviously. And I think, and my whole original goal with even having modular for the masses as a brand or as sort of a project was to let people build their own synthesizers using the tin cans and the RCA jacks and patch cables to get the very, very cheapest, lowest cost modular synthesizer possible and i think that's probably what i've actually done is get the world's cheapest in total cost modular synthesizer that's as complex as it is but it's a really weird approach and it's very unconventional and people haven't jumped on the bandwagon like i was hoping they would (laughs) but that's okay i'm not i'm not my feelings aren't hurt or anything (laughs) No, I think that you know, like a lot of the kind of original ethos to the synth DIY environment world that we're in um, originally was about doing stuff at home for a very low price. And yeah. um, you know, as as companies get involved, as commercialization gets involved, it, it's, it's drifting away from that. Um, and I think people like yourself, um, and I know, like. You know, I've spoken to Benji Zhao as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he um he very much from the kind of background where, you know, you take the schematic, you you get to, to the to the roots of a component, you keep it cost effective, you do stuff yourself, you produce um you're open about what you do, you kind of you've got this inclusivity and accessibility for everyone to benefit. And I, I think that that is 
ultimately what you know it makes it a much more nice place for people yeah, absolutely. Well, and the generosity of people like Benji with sharing designs and tips and help and things like that really was what got me off the ground um, in the in, in the very beginning years, in the first months. Yeah, completely. So I think that, like you know, having that kind of ethos behind your designs is, I, I think, ultimately what people are, what what people will get the most reward from. Yeah. Well, and I do, I've had a couple people build tin can synthesizers or at least modules. So, you know what? That's fine. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> and so, I, and I'm familiar enough with the interior, with the insides and the schematics and the electronics. And that is all universal. And so I can offer my help in that way as well. In fact, Benji had one of my friends who gave me my first three or four um, Eurorack modules gave me a one of Benji's modules. And I was like, oh, hey, look, Benji, I have uh, this module. And he's like, oh, I took the schematic from that from you. <laughs> so I gave, you know, I contributed the schematic, he contributed the PCB and the panel, and my friend gave the Eurorack module to me. So yeah, that sort of inclusivity and that back, that generosity back and forth is one thing I really love. Yeah, totally. I think that that's kind of like people who are just coming into um, Synth DIY, they're always kind of blown away just by how much um, love and generosity there is within the, within the um, group of people that not that talk about it on YouTube and build their synths. Yeah. So yeah, I think we kind of answered this next question a little bit, but um, Synth DIY is a term that means different things to different people. I'm pretty sure this is what we've just been talking about subconsciously. Okay. But please, can you give us your interpretation of the phrase synth DIY? Yeah. I mean, I've so many of the uh, conversations you've had with others talk about building kits um, and, uh, and things like that. We, and that's, uh, not something I've explored as much. I've built several modules for friends. But even, for instance, a music thing, modular, what is the Turing machine? Yeah. Um, I built, I built one for a friend and I, it's, it's good, but it is, it is in a sense, it's a little bit snap, uh, paint by numbers a little bit. Um, and that's, I enjoy it. It's meticulous. It's takes care. Um, and it's uh, rewarding to have a working module in the end, but I've always kind of prefer to do my own uh, designs and assembly. Uh, although recently, within the past year and a half, I've started developing my own actual modules, which uh, using software and getting the panels printed at PC JLC PCB. So that is something that I find super, super fun because then I can sell my modules for as cheap as I can to anybody who wants them. And that's a way to get my designs out there as well. And it's so rewarding to have a PCB come back and have it actually function the way I expect it to. It's just magic. I don't know how, I mean, I do know how it's happened, how it happens, but it blows me away. It still fascinates me that that's even possible. So yeah, synth DIY. I also do, as, as we've been talking about, the community is really neat. Um, I, you were talking with a previous, uh, 
person on your podcast about mutable instruments. And Emily's contributions to the community are over the top. I have a one of her designs. I have two. I have three of the braids um, in my system that I would never have been able to think of something so flexible, so powerful, and that sounds so good. I think the braids is one of my favorite modules of all time. And I had nothing to do with designing that. No, not even close. But yeah, so her contribution kind of epitomizes my idea of what the synth DIY community means. Uh, creativity, inclusivity, and generosity. <laughs> Three things. What a wonderful answer. <laughs> that is good. That, that is good. And I totally agree. I think that, um, you know, when, whenever you're like interacting with a mutable instruments module, you can't, you're kind of almost overwhelmed by, you know, like the ingenuity, um, and and then to make it open source as well. On top of that, is is just mind blowing, really. Absolutely, and so well designed. I find the panels just so beautiful. I've never. Uh, someday, maybe I'll have one. <laughs> but they're so yeah, so pretty, so well designed, and so well thought out. And personally, I like the braids, even though it's so menu divey. Um, especially with the alternate firmwares and things like that, the I still love it. I haven't even really messed with other mutable instruments and modules. So not yeah. everybody, all the menu diving is not for everybody, especially if you're a real performer versus sort of a designer of, of sound. So, yeah. So with the um, kind of your background, we've, I think we've already kind of touched on this as well, but electronics, it's quite a deep subject with physics, mathematics, laws, complex concepts. Are you completely self-taught or do you have any formal background or training at all with DIY? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely self-taught. I sort of wish I had studied electronics uh, in my youth, but I didn't. So I'm totally self-taught. I think it's been a harder road <laughs> to learn everything on your own, but you know what? It's fine. So with your um, tin can modules, was the first one you built that, was it, was it an oscillator? Is that what you were saying? I, the first tin can module I built was a, um, a drone with a CD 40107 Schmidt trigger. So I had a drone with six potentiometers on top and uh, it was a dr little drone machine just using that Schmidt trigger uh, device. Very cool. Really simple. Yeah. I think that's what Benji went for as well. That's what I think that, you know, the hex inverter. Um, yes. Yeah. The hex inverter, that's what it is. Yeah. It's very much a kind of staple, isn't it? Of the Synth DIY basic yeah. oscillator. I think because of the ease of getting, getting a result out of it, yeah, uh, three components. You need the chip, a cap, and a potential or a resistor, and you have an oscillator. <laughs> it's like magic. <laughs> they are pretty awesome. I think that um, there's a, I mean, there's a whole wealth of different projects that can be originated with a hex inverter. Um, where did you go next? Um, next, I built the sequencer, which one of the sequencers I built was the baby 16 and I had 16 LEDs on little wire and the 
sequencer went through the 16 LEDs, and then you could shine the LEDs onto a light-dependent resistor more or less. And that was the only pitch control you really had of the oscillator, is by shining the LED more or less directly on the photo cell. And so that was a really fun project because you could also shine a flashlight at it and make it go. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> that, was, that was a ton of fun. That was one of my, that was like my second one. I built my first filter. I built was a Steiner mm, diode string VCF, and the feedback resonance on that was absolutely horrifying. Like when you triggered the feedback. Uh, it would just screech louder than anything I've ever heard. <laughs> it was kind of scared me pretty bad. Um, but that was a pretty, that's a, you know, that's a really simple um, VCF. It's the resistive element. It's just like a string of six uh, LED or normal diodes. It's maybe six or nine, but there's um, a string of diodes. And so I'm not sure how it got so crazy with its feedback but the designs that I've built since then are much, much more tame. They're, yeah, not nearly that bad. So when you're thinking about um, designing something, is it kind of like, do you get inspired by um, like looking around at schematics or do you have like a, a clear idea about what you're trying to achieve? I have a pretty clear idea of what I want to achieve. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it, it might be a little bit embarrassing, but I love uh, dance music, EDM. And some of the sounds come, coming out of that scene just fascinate me. Like dubstep, as cringy as dubstep may be, they still have some sounds that attract my ears in a way that I'm just like, how do you, how does Skrillex get that screaming synth sound? And that is something I want to duplicate in my synthesizer. And so, yeah, I'm, and especially the formant sounds, the vowel sounds that yeah. is so, it's not just in dubstep. Of course, it's in music all over the place, but that is something I really appreciate and it attracts me so much. So getting like three or four, um, band pass, uh, uh, filters in a row and sending an oscillator through there and just seeing if I can make an eow, make all those different sounds is just crazy to me. Um, and some of a lot of my designs tend to just combine a couple different things. Um, and so the idea of combining a couple things that haven't been combined before, as far as I know here, well, uh, okay, fine. I'll talk about this too. <laughs> this is a delay that I just designed called a dumpster delay. And it has two piezo elements which will be stuck back to back. There's a little picture of the piece. Never mind. This is audio medium. Sorry. Um, you'll use two piezo discs stuck together back to back. One of the piezo discs gets a signal put to it. And so, of course, piezos, you know, wiggle when you put voltage into them. And then that wiggling piezo forces the other piezo disc to wiggle. And that will send a signal to a second amplifier. And that is that little system is in the feedback path of a basic PT2399 delay circuit. And so that adds non-linearities. It adds uh, some kinds of distortion, and it even adds resonant frequencies, which my circuit contains two band 
uh, what is it called? Notch filters that you have to calculate the resistor values to. And that's DIY in the sense that you need to calculate the value of certain resistors as you're building this module. But then I also have a little piece of proto board, which also is in the signal path if you choose. And so people can put whatever they want in there. And I forget what this question began as. <laughs> but that is. I'm enjoying it. I'll tell you one thing is that anytime people start talking about formant filters, you know, you're onto oh, yeah. a good thing. There's something, <sighs> there's some, there's some magic. Um, one of my guests, which hasn't been released yet, um, Johnny three snares. He is a really good artist. You should check him out. Definitely. Yeah. He's, um, kind of does, um, you know, that kind of really kind of, what do they call it? brain dance kind of music you know like where it's like really trippy and like um like every all the synths are being maxed out um and he 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 built a three band pass filters to create a formant he's really into formant and um yeah. it's really cool he built he shows it on his um on his podcast and what you're talking about is exactly the same thing which is quite interesting that you should bring it up because it seems like the formant element like something about identifying specific filters and representing human elements within your synthesis is really important to people okay i'd need to check that out for sure three snares johnny three snares johnny three snares all right because <laughs> i i don't think i've ever heard of brain dance that's what you called it yeah it's kind of like um you know like an have you uh, you know reflex records um which was an early association with um, Aphex Twin back in like yeah. the early 2000s, I think. Um, and there was like a whole subgenre of kind of electronic music, which kind of what I would call is overstimulating kind of electronic mm. music, where it's kind of, it, it will basically make your brain dance. I think that's, you know, literally what the intention is because it's kind of so much going on with it. And, you know, I absolutely know what I'm doing as soon as we sign off. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely going to check that out because that sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's got like some really, basically he's got some really cool ideas about using vocoders and like different bandpass filters to like, I, I, there is something, there is some link with our brains, I think, and the use of these, these elements, which we associate with the voice. Completely true. Absolutely true. Um, vocoders have also been a thing that I've loved since being a child. Um, I guess it's not vocoders, it's the talk box, but that Do You Feel song by, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. It doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, every time there was a vocoder, I'm just clued in because there's those formants. There's the filtering, all those bandpass filters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he built. A, he he actually built um, a talk box as well. You know, with the tube yeah. that you put into into your mouth. He's one of those kind of rare like electronic musicians who actually builds his own modules and then records and uses them. Um, he's very. He was very, very good. I think a lot of you know a lot of music that that's underused today. I think the vocoder and talk boxes they should come back in. We should be hearing that yeah. more. I agree. We should. Let's make it happen. <laughs> right. Let's go for the next question. Um, all right. The world of Synth DIY can be exciting and rewarding, but also presents some challenges to newcomers. Is there anything, any advice that you would give to people getting into Synth DIY? Um, I, well, okay. So I can 
speak to the way I got into circuit building, which is part of an important part of synth DIY. And that's the maker. Oh my word. Hold on. I'm thinking of it. The logic noise series by that website called hack hackaday. Hey, oh my gosh. I thought of it. Hackaday's logic noise series is what taught me about the hex inverter oscillators at the very beginning. Um, that is a really fun, if you just get yourself some breadboard, several, you know, CMOS style chips, you can really get yourself into some interesting territory very quickly. And then I guess I would say after that, just be patient, get yourself some easy kits to build. Um, there's Atari Punk console kits, which are just so rewarding and fun to play with. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that can, that almost anybody can develop as long as you have good eyesight and good fine motor control and patience, because there's going to be that bin of shame that we're going to talk about later. Uh, but as it's not that expensive to approach it from that angle, if you want to drop $10,000 on a big Eurorack modular, oh, that's, that's rough because the cost is prohibitive. And then you end up with something that might just sit there never getting used to its fullest potential, but starting small and taking gradual increments. Yeah. I mean, you can get there and there's things that I struggle with. We, that was another question that's coming up as well. So anyway, I'll stop talking about it now so we can go on the questions. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> there's something to be said about like, you know, like as I, as I kind of go through my life, I'm learning um, that delayed gratification endeavors are the most rewarding. Um, yeah. And yeah, we, and um, basically when, when, when I know myself, when I see, see, see a Euro rack or when I first saw a Euro rack, there was this feeling of lust, you know, like yeah. I want, I want to possess something that looks like X, Y, Z. And as, as I progress, I'm, I'm trying to improve that in myself, you know, like not to, and, and I think when I hear people like yourself talking, I realize that, you know, a lot can be learned through listening to people that have taken a path that you're that basically is it's like advice you know like if you take a path where you're learning you're you're using patience and you're delaying the the gratification that you're going to get the the rewards will be that much greater yeah i mean you can buy a dope for um rack and you'll have all the elements well you can buy a neutron a, a behringer neutron if you want and you've got a synth that you know there it is but then you don't necessarily understand what's behind the panels and you don't necessarily understand what it can do or how to make it do what you want it to do. So taking it piece by piece, bit by bit, taking it slowly can be really valuable because you're like, oh, here's a filter. What does it do? And then you can really explore that. But the filter in the Neutron, it's a perfectly capable filter, but it will only work if as part of the whole, you can't really play with it all by itself necessarily. Maybe you can. I've only played with the Neutron once. I think uh, yeah. Yeah, Neutron's a great example. I mean, I actually I have owned a Neutron in the past, and um, I actually found, you know, like people are being spoiled really these days yeah. for the money that you could buy a Neutron. Um, obviously, you know, 
Behringer aside, you've got a <laughs> Behringer aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you have actually got all of the functionality that people, you know, like before before the advent of the of the neutron, you, it would be very difficult to achieve that level. And I think people are being spoiled, really. Um, and mm. and and as such, people, you know, you kind of get to that attitude where you you you, you disregard the journey because you've been yeah. given it all in one go. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely true. And you didn't build any of it yourself. No, you're exactly build right. Build it yourself, everybody. Build it yourself. This is the way. This is the way. <laughs> okay. Projects can be unique and special in their own way and often hold sentimental value. Can you tell us about one of your favorite projects and what made it so meaningful? Um, okay, so... The oldest project I have in my synth is a engineer's thumb, which is a type of compressor. It has the one I have has four knobs, but you can build it with five. But I built the engineer's thumb, put it into a tin can, installed it in my synth, and it just kind of sat there for a while until I plugged my 808 kick drum into it. And then it stopped being a compressor as much as it started being a really interesting, cool distortion pedal. So that is, and it, and it also runs from, I built, I built this back before I knew much about power supplies and things like that, I, you know, how bipolar power. So it just runs off 12 volts and ground. It's single sided supply. And of course now I could build it to dual supply, but anyway, that single supply lowers the headroom of the, uh, clipping. So the kind of clipping I can get out of there is just insane compared to uh, other compressors that might have a full 24 volts swing. Um, that's probably my favorite. It just gives the kick a meat and it even kind of stretches the distortion. It kind of stretches the kick in a really interesting way to me. Um, that's my favorite module. Yeah. That's great. I love to and hear about. I think yeah, compre- I compressors are, presses are one of the most underrated tools in the modular world. Well, an ideal, I mean, the, if you use a compressor the way you're supposed to, you shouldn't even be able to tell it's there, which is kind of disappointing, right? You want to be able to turn a distortion pedal on and have you be like, yeah, listen to that. But nobody ever is like, wow, listen to that compressor. <laughs> That's not a thing people say. I think if you're anything like me, you end up playing with the compressor until you yeah. can hear it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably true. <laughs> yes. Yes, you're right. Well, and the sidechain effect uh, of the compressor is something that I adore. In fact, I'm designing a whole sidechain uh, uh, module right now um, that does that ducking sound. And that's one of my favorite sounds. That doesn't use this compressor. I have a whole subsystem for sidechaining in my modular as well. But that subsystem is a whole subsystem and it's still being developed and refined. So that's not my favorite. Maybe it's my favorite sound effect, I guess, maybe, that you can do in a modular. But that's not the thing. Yeah, yeah I love um, you know, the ducking as well. Um, and it's one of those, you can, I've, I think with ducking, like getting the inverted signal to drop in on a clock. Do you, is that how, you, is that how, how, can you give us an overview of your uh, um, other idea? I'm quite interested in your ducking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My, my entire ducking signal, my sidechain signal path. Um, my kick goes into an envelope follower, 
the envelope follower goes into uh, one, two, three, four, five, maybe six v- uh, VCAs that are connect that are built into um, my mixers that I have. So the VCAs that I always uh, the envelope follower is a basic envelope follower. It has a few diodes and it outputs the the envelope of the kick drum. And of course, you could put other sounds in there as well. It would follow that envelope as well. But then that sound is, that signal is inverted to be positive most of the time. And then it ducks down the, when it ducks down, it turns on a Vactral style LED, LDR, um, uh, VCA that turns down basically every other channel that I have it plugged into. I have a one, two, four channel ducking mixer which is my main mixer that I love to use. My bass lines go through there and my melodies, and they have adjustable duck strengths, so to speak. Uh, that's my basic envelope follower LDR style uh, VCA. The kick drum that I've designed and that we built last year at KnobCon as a workshop has a dedicated ducking VCA envelope out. And so it's a voltage that sticks around 10 volts to keep your music up high. And then when the kick triggers, it drops that voltage down. Uh, so ducking is an important effect to me. And uh, I wish it was easier to use. You need so many different parts in your system. Mixers don't come with duck ready VCAs built into them, but they should. <laughs> you, yeah. No, I think that's. I mean, that's a really good way of doing it. I think I've been doing it a little bit more. Probably should use an envelope follower, but I've just been getting away with just kind of stretch. You know, using a an envelope yeah. generator, but better to better to do it with a follower makes more sense, yeah. really. Well, and a lot of people will do a duck based on it. You know, you do use an envelope. You have it on a clock or on an LFO. I have a friend who does it with LFOs, like a like a clocked LFO. So it's just, mm, mm, mm. but it's a great sound in any case. And it keeps your, uh, you know, that's one of the things that dubstep does kind of use is, I don't know if dubstep uses it as, as much as other kinds of electronic music, house and techno, but Definitely. that ducking is important to keep the bass from messing with each other, from interfering with itself. Yeah, because like the thing is, I don't know about you, but you can mix something at home or like on your headphones, and you think it sounds fine, and you listen to it in another in a car or something, and you're like, "Yeah, oh no, what have I done?" <laughs> no, like I I did a track, and um, my modular journey bass, uh, he was like, "Maybe you should have used ducking," and I was like, "Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> this is uh, correct. Yeah, right. Let's let's go with the next question." Um, Again, some of these questions, just a framework, but we have kind of touched into these um, um, these elements because I think, you know, with your style of builds, this is to do with um, Synth DIY offers a wide range of possibilities from kits, breadboard, stripboard, and complex surface mount designs. So we know the answer to this one, but we're going to ask it anyway. Just to, Yeah. Um, do you prefer building from kits, creating your own layouts on breadboard or designing your own custom boards from scratch. Um, when I started, I started using, I tried using perf board and strip board and things like that 
For some reason, I fail so hard using that two-dimensional strategy. I don't know why, but literally one out of every 20 projects I would build would, would work. The rest of them would fail. I accepted that about myself and about my brain that I can't build circuits like that. So I started building them in three dimensions with wires flying to, you know, you have the power, you have all the signal wires and wherever possible, the components just attach to each other directly. Like I can build a MS 20 VCF with two chips stacked on top of each other and all the components stuck on. The only things that are separate are the potentiometers. Um, so that is a possibility. You, you can do that. In fact, I have a step-by-step uh, instructable on how to build an MS-20 VCF. <laughs> it, it's so small it can fit almost behind one of those full-size uh, potentiometers. It can just attach right there. So that's the way I prefer to build things. But as I've gotten as I've progressed further along in my journey, I have decided or I have started to build circuits by designing circuit boards. And I use JLC PCB's SMD service, which is so economical. I can't even describe to you how economical it is, especially if you have a successful project, you can keep one or two, sell the others for cheap and still make money. Um, it's great. Love it. Totally recommend if you're interested in designing your own circuits to use JLC PCB. Their design software, I sound like a commercial. I'm sorry, an advert. No, no. Their, um, their design software runs inside a browser. Unbelievably powerful. I, early in my journey, I tried messing with Eagle and KiCad and I failed at those because of the dependencies and the libraries you had to download. I couldn't even figure out how to get a simple schematic drawn. But with easy EDA, things are there at your fingertips in a way that is different from other design pack, other design software packages. So yeah, I recommend that without reservation. Um, so when it comes to my own personal modules that I build, I'll still do them point to point, kind of freestyle, component stuck to component. And that's a really quick, easy, cheap way to do prototypes. But when it comes, it goes beyond prototypes at this point, I'll design a PCB and have it fab- fabricated at JLC PCB. I think people, you know, like, I think that goes against, you know, like when people hear someone like yourself talking passionately about an experience that they've had kind of going from point to point and especially, you know, your two-dimensional issues that you were having early on and then to find success with you know something like jlc i mean that would definitely you know it might sound like an advert but actually you know inspires people to put effort down that direction because i know myself i've i've had you know i i do it for a living and when i look at kicad and anything you know anything remotely kind of software related i kind of start getting you know a bit angsty about it all because I'm yeah. thinking this is too much like work, too much like work. Oh, sure. Yeah. But when, 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 you know, when I hear someone like yourself talking passionately about your own experience, it kind of makes me feel like, Oh, maybe I should, you know, invest a bit more time in that area. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess the, I guess I'm privileged in the fact that I don't 
my professional life has nothing to do with electronics or engineering or anything like that. It can be a total passion project for me. So I can look forward to designing a PCB, whereas people who work <laughs> in <laughs> PCB design, no way, I'm not doing that on my time off. Are you kidding? Yeah, no. There are there are a few exceptions. I know like there are some guys out there like um three Tom Modular, he's done that um MS twenty two design and it is a very te- I, I know I think he works in in some kind of like electronic engineering role and he's very high end in that area, but he still finds the time to basically design and produce modules like his MS twenty two filter and i know that um when you see people like that you know oh you know there's going to be some electronic trickery and it's not trickery but like it's being going to be done to a competent level and so you'd expect it to be a good uh and it would basically but then you get everyone all over the spectrum but I, i personally feel like um with um with with designing and elements like that when when the when it when the entry requirements are very high it becomes a bit of a turn off but um yeah how how did you find did you have to like study any youtube or videos to learn how to use easy eda or was it something that's quite intuitive um with easy eda i initially wanted to use it simply to draw a schematic that was too complicated to draw by hand um, I drew the schematic by hand many, many times and was never really happy with the way it was laid out. So then I drew it and cut all the different parts out and then placed it on a piece of paper and drew lines back and forth like that. But even that I wasn't really happy with. So I was like, ah, let me find a way to draw schematics on the, you know, within software. And there was ED, Easy EDA. And once I finished with the uh, to answer your question about YouTube, no, I never did that. I should have. That would have been a good idea. But once I used EDA to draw a schematic that I was happy with, I looked at the menu and I'm like, wait a second, you can turn this into a PCB? So I clicked that and I'm like, oh, sort of the clouds parted and the angels sang. And I was thinking, oh, you can turn this into a circuit board and the tools they have are a little glitchy and strange, but you can draw your traces and you can do auto routing and all that um, if you want. Uh, and so that was kind of my eye-opening experience that, sure, you can use it to just get a really nice machine-drawn schematic, or you can use it to get a machine-drawn schematic and then take the next step to, to, to design a, a, a printed circuit board. That's great. I think people, you know, love to hear that because I think there's probably a lot of people out there who would, who would love the idea of, you know, maybe not breadboarding something because breadboarding is quite fiddly and they might like to take a schematic from, I don't know, a PT2399 or something yeah. um, and yeah. then just draw the schematic in easy EDA and then get the PCB sent to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's so... I mean, again, I feel like a stupid advert. I'm not affiliated at all, but it's so cheap. You can get a $2 uh, kit, a set of five uh, circuit boards. Of course, shipping is outrageous, but that is what it is. Yeah, there are times when I'm prototyping a build, and there's parts that I'm planning to duplicate, but I'll only prototype one of the parts 
and not bother duplicating because I know it'll work fine when it's on a circuit board. That's awesome. How about um, equipment? Is there any particular tools or techniques or any equipment that you particularly enjoy using? Um, I just bought a real soldering iron for deck for like four years. I used the cheapest soldering iron I could find. We have a store in the States called Harbor Freight, <laughs> which sells almost garbage tools. But I, I that's where I buy all my tools, even though they're garbage. But I just used the cheapest garbage soldering iron. You can do that. So don't be intimidated by the $100 plus cost of a proper soldering rig, soldering station. And then if you do need to step up from your $4 soldering iron, you can get my, the soldering iron I use now, which is wonderful, is uh, I think it's $18 on AliExpress. So don't be afraid to use cheap material. Use good solder. Use good solder. That's really important. I use uh, Kester, K-E-S-T-E-R. Uh, good solder, nice and small, fine pitch. I forget how many millimeters it is, but it's only, it's small. So yeah, small solder, cheap soldering irons are fine and just practice. Like you can do anything you need to do, even with a cheap soldering iron, as long as you have decent solder and some technique. Also flux. Don't be afraid of using flux. Flux is so good when it comes to desoldering things, when it comes to making things, uh, making a solder joint wet as opposed to dry and crumbly. Yeah. So flux, good solder, garbage soldering iron <laughs> that'll work that'll do it cheers that's perfect now i'm hoping the next question i'm hoping that i prepared you for this one okay i'm hoping um this is a new segment the show and tell segment oh, yeah. yeah yeah that's good you know what i was gonna say because um be big shout out to benji he's already been mentioned on the show but he will be i'm sure because he's such a nice guy um but he was his suggestion for this segment so uh this is a special segment where the guest is asked to bring anything they like to the podcast and talk about it it doesn't have to be synth diy related but it can be it's totally fine um, if we can try and be really descriptive about it so that the people who are just listening um, can get a good visual from our words, that would be great. Yes. Um, I am bringing my prototype, something that I've called the Nyquist nightmare. The Nyquist frequency is, of course, how fast or uh, how much you need to filter any sort of pulse width or, or digital signal to make it sound natural. I'm not using it in that actual sense because I just like the sound of Nyquist nightmare. And let me see if I can plug this into a mixer input. I don't know if we're going to get the, when you were playing with the audio earlier, we couldn't really get it through. No. I can almost hear it. Oh. Can you hear that? I can almost hear it. It's good. Um, I'm recording this with my computer so I can send you the file if you want. Oh, perfect. Sorry. That's fine. And I'll, I'll be as descriptive as I can about the guts of this because what it is 
right now what I'm looking at is a Stroop waffle <laughs> tin. Stroop waffle. Those uh, they're from the Netherlands, I guess. They're like little waffles with caramelish stuff in between. So it's a Stroop waffle tin with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten knobs on it. And what it's doing is it's setting up two VCAs, VCOs, voltage-controlled oscillators, that can go from very low to about 60,000 or higher hertz. So it goes way above audio. The incoming signal frequency modulates that oscillate, the first oscillator. And then the first oscillator feeds into the second oscillator, which you can tune. So you can tune these two oscillators together. gets really harsh. And so when you put a signal into both of those voltage-controlled oscillators, what comes out can sort of sound like it has been mangled by an AM broadcast style, uh, uh, by being broadcast over AM. Um, let me find a... Let me try it with my voice, okay? So I'm unplugging my voice from the mixer right now. So anyway, <laughs> that's that's my Nyquist nightmare. It is a I love using it for vocals because the differences you can get in the sound it can transform vocals into things that I don't I don't feel like I've heard before. I suppose I probably have, but it's, I, I love it. Um, if you're in the United States, or if you can afford to fly to Chicago in September, if you want, you can build one of these with me. Um, it is a for KnobCon, uh, which is KnobCon number 11. I feel like I'm doing way too much advertising. I'm so sorry, Gareth. <laughs> no, no. Honestly, this is great. I mean, like, you know, people need to hear this stuff. They need to know where you're at. They might, you know, this might be an opportunity for them to be able to produce some awesome gear. So it's great. Yeah. I mean, KnobCon is my number one. It's the only synthesizer uh, event I've ever been to, and it's tons of fun. It's it's a uh, a little, it's not as big as the one you have in Europe in Berlin. Super booth, yeah, super booth. It's not that big, and super booth looks incredible. I would go there if I had the chance. But KnobCon is a lot of fun, and it's in Chicago, so it's uh, you know, if you're in the U.S., it's close by. It's right next to Heathrow. Not Heathrow. That's the London one. O'Hare. Anyway, yeah, that's awesome, man. That's that was a great, um, a great sound. I love this. The actual name, the Nyquist nightmare. What I mean, can you talk a bit about where the nightmare element comes in? Uh, it sounds like a nightmare. It takes a <laughs> signal that is pure and clean and mangles it using frequencies. That's why 
I use the name Nyquist. Um, yeah, it just uses frequencies and abuses the way a voltage-controlled oscillator kind of is supposed to work. I, I mean, not really, because anything goes with electronics. But yeah, Nyquist and then Nightmare. It's just a nightmare. It's, it can be really harsh. It can be screamy. It tends to be very heavy and high frequency, but there's a high frequency, there's a high pass filter and a low pass filter built in. Uh, you can adjust all that stuff, take out the frequencies you don't like. I think it sounds great. Like the way that you've got this cross modulation happening with the frequencies. I think that's really yeah. cool. Thank you. And if it, could you understand me when I was trying to be understood? <laughs> well, when you were talking through it. Yeah. No, like, you couldn't. No, could you? <laughs> not really. <laughs> of course I mean, not. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I think that it will probably be uh, more apparent on the recording when when yeah, when we when we hear it. But, well, in in my ears, it sounded like <laughs> that's what it sounded like to me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's, I mean, with this particular circuit, it rewards careful tweaking. Like you really can just tweak it and just play with the knobs as you know, subtly as you can and actually get something through that is audible and sounds, you know, recognizable and sounds okay. So you've got, have you got two oscillators and, um, is it, is it one filter or two filters? Well, the, the low pass filter and the high pass filter are there just to remove the extreme rumble and the extreme harsh high end. And they are resonant filters. So you can, well, the high pass filter my bad. The low pass filter is a resonant filter, so you can bring out a particular frequency that you want with the resonance knob. But the two, um, the two VCOs interact with each other, uh, in a way to pass the signal on, even though there's no, um, the, the actual signal isn't getting through. The signal is getting turned into a, I don't know, 30,000 hertz, 30 kilohertz wave. And then that 30 kilohertz wave is feeding into another one, which just if you set it at the exact 30 kilohertz, you can get kind of that same input wave out. Uh, but even then it's mangled, it's messed up, you know, and that's, that's one thing. And, and that's what I did with the two piezo ele uh, elements. You're taking a signal and transferring it to another uh, device without the signal being transferred itself. And that's an interesting thing to me. Just yeah, last week, I built an LED. So it turns out LEDs both detect, uh, they emit light when you put a voltage to them. And then when you put light into them, they emit a small voltage. So I built two LED to LED Vactrols, basically. I built a pair of those things and connected them backwards from each other so the positive and negative voltages could get through to the LEDs. And those flashes of light could be picked up by the other two LEDs. I plugged that into a, an amplifier and it worked. It actually functioned just fine. It did. I haven't had time to mess with it since then, but it does an interesting kind of distortion and it's definitely worth investigating. So yeah, that's another thing that I did recently. That's great. I mean, just even thinking about using an LED like an LDR, is that kind of like the mindset really? That is the mindset, but an LDR is naturally quite slow in millisecond terms, but an LED is quite fast. They can, that's, that's how remote controls work. Um, there's like a little LED photo, LED cell that the light, that picks up the light. 
that you're shining at it with the uh, remote control. <clears throat> yeah, they that's do kind of work that way. Well, that's cool. I mean, I've, I think the speed of it, because I know that people, you know, like they complain about Vactrals being slow, um, but to, to use an LED, I guess you've got much lower... Do you get like a resistance out of it then? The same. No, as- you get a you get a small voltage. I think yeah. it's dependent upon the breakdown voltage of the LED. So at best, you're probably going to get two volts usable out of it. And I'm not. I don't know much. I don't think the uh, sort of light picking up property of an LED is very well explored. At least not in the synth community. I'm sure it's explored when it comes to you know, using it as a remote control receiver, uh, or as a, I mean, probably, pro- you know what? I think, um, for MIDI, they have those opto isolator chips and the schematic symbol of that is an led coupled to a light sensing transistor. And it could be that the light sensing transistor uses the same kind of property as an led. I'm not sure, but so opto isolators are basically doing that. Um, with an LED and a light-dependent transistor. I'm wondering whether, like, because recently I've been looking into OTAs, you know, the... Um, sure. And I was thinking, you know, with a low voltage, because they need a very low voltage, yeah, whether, whether that would be useful in somehow in that LED Yeah, you could try that. it. I think that would that would be a nice shortcut, because you need to amplify the LEDs yeah. voltage a lot. Yeah, interesting. I might do it. I mean, there would be so much distortion from the properties of the LED except in the light, but it might be interesting distortion. I mean, distortion isn't bad. Distortion can be amazing. (laughs) All right. We're onto the, we're onto the favorite question now. The bin Hmm. of shame. Oh, the bin of shame. The bin. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to read the question because I I enjoy hearing it when I listen back to the show. I don't know why, but and also my wife, for some reason, she enjoys this little bit but even the most experienced builders and makers have projects that didn't turn out as planned whether due to technical difficulties lack of resources or simply bad luck can you share with us a project or build that didn't quite make the light of day and what ultimately caused this project to end up in your bin of shame okay um i will say that the circuit that i tried to build more often than every other circuit would be the TR909 kick drum, which is there's maybe three different schematics that I found on the internet. None of them agree. And the Roland one, which you would expect to be uh, correct, is almost impossible to read. It's so difficult to, to read. So the 909... I built it five times. None of my builds worked, even the one that I was being so meticulously careful. So that one, all of the copies of those wound up in the bin of shame, much to my chagrin. But then later I learned that the part that I liked about the 909 kick drum is something I could reproduce kind of on my own. So I I built the double plus bass, which is one of my modules that I have designed. Um, so yeah, the 909, there's a lot of other things that I've wanted to build and tried to build many times, but that have failed and failed and failed. But I feel like I've just haven't got there yet. It's a journey. And eventually I will 
build myself a sample playback module or you know a sequencer that does control voltage instead of just uh triggers eventually that will happen i'm interested in your point there what what was it about the 909 the characteristics of the 909 that you really liked one thing i love about it is the ability you can tune the sharpness of the drop the doo. you know you can have it be a really steep pitch dive and that's really nice that's one of the things i love about it um the way the 909 is used, there's often a large rumble sound that follows it, especially in techno, especially German techno. You get that, there's just this sort of like a, a vibrating warehouse, you know, that sound. I thought originally that that was part of the 909 feature, but it's not. That's an effect, of course, that is added later on. Um, so, so that's something you have to get on your own in a different way. But the 909 kick can just do that. You know, if you're in a warehouse, if you happen to be in a warehouse, <laughs> the 909 will probably get that better than an 808. The 808, of course, is my other favorite kick drum. It's a wonderful one as well. And it's so much more simple. I've built an 808 kick in just point to point in a very small space, like maybe an inch by a half inch in a cube. So what was the name of your module? The double, was it the double bass? Was it double plus double bass? Plus. It takes inspiration from Thomas Henry's bass plus, but then I like the idea of, uh, uh, the guy who wrote 1984, that book has newspeak, right? And everything yeah. has to be, has to fit according to the rules of newspeak. So something's double plus good. So the bass plus became the double plus bass. Awesome. Double plus bass. George Orwell. Legend. Yes, George Orwell. And this is my double plus bass. Anyway, that's one thing that it sounds like. Sounds like a million different things. I'm sure people will know the answer to this question, but where can people find you on social media? What platforms do you most frequent? Um, I'm most frequently on Instagram at Juanito HM. Juanito spelt the Spanish way with HM on the end. I don't think there's another way to spell Juanito. But the uh but I I, I chose Juanito HM because Houston Moore is my middle and last name. But then everyone once I got into electronics was like, oh, like the resistor. I'm like, uh yes, that's right. That was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that. I thought that. Yeah. And then of course. <laughs> Yeah, it's only when you break it down you realize it doesn't quite work because <laughs> there's no missing O. But then you just think, but I, I didn't question it. I just went with it. Just thought oh, it must be it must be one need to own. <laughs> Either that or I do yoga and I say, oh, do you do yoga? <laughs> no, no, not really. <laughs> I can. I just don't. <laughs> right. So, um, oh. Juanito H. Moore is where I'm most common. I do have a YouTube page. If you search for Juanito Synthesizer, you can probably find me. Um, I have a store, which I neglect completely. I have a blog, which I've started to write, but these are all... Uh, I don't have much in the way of self-promotion to do in that sense, because... Juanito HM is probably the best place. Just that's a one-stop shop because that's me. 
I also enjoy seeing your um, me- mechanic work on your Instagram recently. <laughs> oh my word, that's right. It's so much work. If you have a Toyota Prius, <laughs> get the bearings changed at a shop because they're so hard to do yourself. Oh, so difficult. I've got some but experience I've got it down now. I've got some experience doing wheel bearings, but not on Toyota Prius. In fact, like on a land, you know, like old Land Rover Discoveries. Like oh, sure, the, but the older ones, you know, like from the nineties, you know, like the the real the, the boxy ones. I had um, a Land Rover Discovery, and I had some old Land Rover, you know, like the Range Rovers, the early ones. Yeah, yeah. And, me and my friends used to do a lot of work on those, and um, I've got a lot of experience changing wheel bearings. So I enjoyed watching that side to your Instagram, to be honest. <sighs> well, so with the old with the old ones, there's going to be a bearing that you pull out and you put a new bearing in, as opposed to a whole cassette, like a whole chunk. The hub doesn't replace, does it? No. You just take the bearings out and repack them with grease and put yeah. them back in, for instance? Yeah, there you go quite an enjoyable process actually like you know when you've got this bearing you get your new bearing and you're packing grease through it it's, it's very satisfying oh, yeah. very satisfying <laughs> absolutely okay next question when when you're looking for inspiration and it doesn't have to be it just in life just to know know a little bit more about you where do you go for inspiration um that's an excellent question. Um, I would say that when it comes to synthesizer inspiration, listening to some of my favorite music is where some of the inspiration comes from. In fact, calling back to the bin of shame uh, uh, idea, I have wanted to get the Amen break or funky drummer, you know, one of these drum loops. I've wanted to integrate that into my performances. Uh, and I have tried the ISD or the ISD 1820 sampler chip. I have a Robert Sonic slash spark fun wave trigger. Um, I've tried so many different strategies to get that sample into my system and I've never been able to do that. But listening to drum and bass and jungle, you hear that, you know, coming through almost constantly. And that's something that I've just loved. I've been inspired by that sound and I've never been able to reproduce it because there's always a gap. There's always something wrong. I'm not working inside a grid. I just have a knob that controls the the sample speed and a trigger that goes to it every bar or to every two bars. So that is so inspiring to listen to music and try to duplicate what I hear. But then on the other hand, the bin of shame is I fail frequently and don't get what I want, but I have fun doing it. Um, some of the, one of the things that I've been inspired by recently is Psytrance, which is the more trippy, sometimes aggressive and fast music. And one of the tricks that is really typical in Psytrance is skipping, is changing from the four on the floor for the bass drum, for the bass line at least, to going to a triplet like dun 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 dun, dun uh, doing a triplet bass line. That, I love that so much. If I'm at a show or a club and that happens, I will probably start crying from joy because of the way it makes me feel. And I have a whole, um, 
not really a bit of shame because I did build one for myself, but I have a whole clock system that can do divisions of dotted quarter notes, triplets, uh, all the way to 265 beats and down to a 16th and a 32nd. So I have that that inspired me to try to capture that triplet baseline. And again, I've never really been able to succeed at doing that either. But I think listening to music, whatever gets me, whatever goes into my heart, uh, and I love that sound, I will try to duplicate that. That's where I get a lot of my inspiration from. That's great. I really love hearing that kind of stuff because, I mean, it's really great to hear about people's passion for music. And, you know, like, I think sometimes in life you can forget about the power of connecting with a good bass line or, you know, being in a club environment something which i haven't really got back into myself um and you know I'll, there's been a few tracks recently that i was just thinking oh i'm gonna have to send you this track after this um chat because there was this one track that they keep playing at um the gym i go to and it's like a really it's got such a good bass line like such a good uh, i'm gonna send you it after this i might i might have yeah, got a link please. to it but um and you just kind of when when you when you hear someone like yourself passionately talking about bass lines and side trance it just it takes you it takes you to a good place it's great to hear man thanks well and i feel so basic because edm is such a shallow genre in so many ways it's just something to go to the club to and dance to and not think about. But there are people, and this is what I have to keep telling myself, there are people who do take it seriously. <laughs> even, though, even though it's so shallow and so deeply dumb, especially like, I mean, dubstep has the, just, it reeks like, you know, Axe body spray. It's not a well-respected genre, but it has its charm and it has it. I, I guess I'm. I guess I'm being proud in explaining that I like this, hoping that people would be like, you know what, kind of maybe like it too. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go. It's so dumb, but it's good. And people, I mean, okay, so you know, really well-respected artists, uh, Bob Dylan, for instance. I mean, he's an, a poet. He's an artist. He's a thinker. Um, but I've never really found myself resonating with music like his that is filled with, you know, words and poetry and imagery, things like that. I've never found myself resonating with that uh, to, to a large extent, but I can resonate with a psytrance track that gets dropped in the middle of a set somewhere Um Everybody has, and I wonder if it's a brain chemistry thing because my wife can't stand my kind of music. My kids like it just fine, but it doesn't really grab them in their soul, in their mind. I don't know what it is. I can only think it must be a brain chemistry thing. Some of us are wired to love electronic dance music and some of us aren't. And that's okay. I think it's great because I think when you're talking, you know, you've got that kind of poetry and that passion in your words. So, you know, like you obviously you think in some some way. It sounds like you're you're thinking in in a way which you might associate with Dylan, but actually maybe maybe you just enjoy the disconnect and just letting yourself go. That happens when you listen to side trance. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people I've talked to have who do like 
dance music talk about there being a moment of, of epiphany where they were like, oh, I used to love rock and roll. I used to lo- want to just be in a metal band. But then I went to some shows, and at first I didn't get it. I thought it all sounded the same. You know, the DJ presses play, and two hours later they're finished because they've let a track play for two whole hours. Um, but then something happens, whether it's just the right night, whether they've been on just the right drugs, they've been with the right people, and their eyes open, and they're like, oh, I understand the whole thing now. And I've, I've never had the epiphany. I've just loved it ever since I was little. It's like, why do people like music with words? Why can't they just listen to instrumental tracks? <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, no, it is. I am so passionate about it. true. Do you have any, um, although you just kind of said you didn't have the epiphany, is there any particular standout concerts that you went to that you can talk about? Um, my favorite concerts tend to be the ones that, well, shows and clubs yeah. tend to be the ones that just have the best sound reinforcement, especially subwoofers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so basic. I can't stand it. But the, the, the shows that shake your clothes, that's the, even if it's music that doesn't necessarily trigger that happy place in my brain. If my shirt is wiggling, if my pants are wiggling on my body, that is, there's just something magical there. And of course there's endorphins, you know, you get enough bass and it releases endorphins. Um, and it'll, it'll produce a sort of out of body type experience. But I will say that when I was living in England in 1986, the track by Steve Silk Hurley, Jack Your Body. That came over to the UK on 12 inch. So it was too long to technically be considered for the, uh, for the pop charts, but it sold so well that it hit the pop charts. It, it, it went to number one, I believe. And so this Steve Silk Hurley Chicago house track was on the radio when I was living in England. And that has the 808 kick drum, has the 808, uh, hat and snare and the 808 cowbell which is the dumbest sound <laughs> but as a i was like you know 15 and i'm listening to this thong noise I'm like what is that amazing noise this is incredible so that was probably my introduction well definitely that was my introduction to dance music and i loved it then even though i never went to any shows until i was a proper adult uh loved it yeah, I'm I'm a little bit jealous of people who went to the rave scene when they were kids because, I mean, Bjork used to go to raves. I want to go to a rave with Bjork when she was like 20. Oh, my word. That would be unbelievable. Totally, man. I remember yeah, like one of, well, whilst we're talking, one of my kind of formative experiences was going to see the Orb play. Ah, um, the Orb. Yeah, and they and and this was like in it was ninety nine and it was in Winchester that where they had like it was either Homelands or Creamfields. It was like one of those events, and they had quadraphonic sound in the and they did this motorbike going round the you know like we were all in front of the stage and they had this sound that was going quadraphonic like a motorbike going round. It was one of the you know I still. I can remember it clearly and like having this conversation, like it brings, brings me back to that moment when you when you experience something unique, you know, like having that guttural feeling of something that loud spinning around you whilst you're in this event. It was just one of those moments. Oh, incredible. Did you get goosebumps? I mean, that's the thing. You can get goosebumps just 
I'm getting it now, just talking about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Right. So this this last question, it's not really, you know, that you can take it or leave it, this one, because I know some people find this difficult to answer, and I don't like putting you on the spot, but is there any um, Synth DIY makers out there that, that you find um, inspirational? Um, I have found inspiration from the... Christian Blaisel, you just uh, released the podcast with him. He was a, a an inspiration to me. Um, one of the guys who gets sent to me most often is uh, Sam uh, from uh, Look Mom No Computer. His ideas are so creative and so bonkers, and he has such a prodigious output of work. It blows me away. That is inspiring um, for me. Um, those are those are two guys, uh, and then of course Emily's generosity with releasing her designs uh, of mutable instruments. Uh, I do take inspiration from her designs when it comes to a schematic level. She has some of the most clever um, ways of processing control voltages, for instance, and I have lifted some of those straight from her work. Um, and she's, I guess she's DIY in the sense that, I mean, but yeah, she's pretty established at this point. Not, not exactly an amateur anymore, but those are three people. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. That's those amazing questions. Um, question answers to the question. Um, it's been great talking to you today. It's been like, for me personally, this has been, it's been a really great journey just to kind of go through, you know, some of those subjects where we're talking about music and passion and also hearing about, you know, the small things like you growing up in Peru um, and your first interactions with modular synthesis. Um, it's been a fantastic chat. I really, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on today. It's been great. Thanks, man. Thank you, Gareth. It's wonderful. Cool. Well, I'm just going to wrap up. As I said at the start, thanks to all of you who have watched, commented, and liked the podcast we've had so far. I'd really appreciate it if you give this episode a like and consider subscribing as it really helps to grow the show. See you guys next time. Cheers. Hey. <laughs> oh, thanks, Gareth. Thanks, man. That was great.